I am a craftsman, not an artist. Not the typical words you'd hear from a celebrated chef. I'm Ryan Bloom, and on today's episode of the Fireside Chat, Chef Steve Sampson of famous restaurant in Los Angeles, Rasa Blue. We'll hear from Steve about working through COVID, modifying his style for takeout, and shifting his dynamic style of cooking into what is necessary to get through the changes and the shifts that COVID has put on to all of us. We'll also hear about his story and how his experience growing up in Bologna with his family on his ancestral land has helped to create the level of story and integration of his recipes, his thoughts on food, and how he wants his guests to experience his food in Los Angeles. Enjoy. Hi, Chef. Hi, Ryan. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Nice to see you. I'm I'm doing well. Thank you. I have been looking forward to this one, I'll tell you. Yeah, thank you. You know, I realize with everything going on in California, not exactly great, uh, not a gra- exactly great timing for a uh, for a relaxed uh, conversation. <laughs> yeah, it's been a rough, uh, rough couple months, but seems to be some light at the end of the tunnel. Well, I glad to hear it. I, I was uh, I was watching the news earlier, and I saw um, Governor Newsom's new announcement on a number of. Uh, a number of uh, regions or zones within California going yeah. into more restrictive, um, I don't know if the right word is lockdowns or not, but I, is that affecting where you live? Yeah. Your, so before getting into anything, and I have a whole bunch of things I want to ask you about and talk to you about, okay. very challenging time to be a restaurateur in any almost uh, you know consumer-facing sort of business. Certainly right. ones where gathering and celebration is at the very essence of, of the whole business. Um, right. What's going on in your world, your restaurant, your home, your community? Help, help just, I'd like to hear a little bit about how things sure. are in, in your world. Well, uh, things were going fairly well. We had kind of transitioned and positioned ourselves in a place where we were surviving at the restaurant. Um, we have a very big outdoor patio. Uh, we've been super compliant since day one with all the health uh, regulations and, and suggestions. We definitely decided early on that if we weren't able to offer a place where people could gather and, and, uh, and enjoy themselves uh, and not worry about COVID, that we didn't want to do it. So in order to do that, we wanted to have a wide open space lots of social distancing. We wanted it to be safe, not only for the guests, but for our staff as well. And in that regard, we've been testing uh, our team every week. Uh, We have had no positive tests since we began doing that a few months ago. Uh, Nonetheless, we are now going to, the city is shutting us down for at least the next three weeks. They're, They're kind of we're allowing outdoor dining, and uh, now they're not going to allow even outdoor dining. So we're going to be shut down and just on a takeout um, delivery model for the next uh, three weeks minimum. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, we've been in that. We've but. we've been in that here since October twenty eighth. Uh-huh. Uh, Montreal became, I mean, they classify them as a red zone, which is a certain number of cases. And right. they shut down uh, any type of eat-in restaurants, fitness studios, museums, yeah. any of that type of stuff where, where people yeah. 
come close together. Yeah. Um, what has it been like for someone? I mean, and, and I'll, and I'll ask the question this way. Um, both my brothers are restaurateurs. Okay, great. Um, one has more of a fast casual sort of concept, so very much, uh, you know, able to embrace not having eat in with takeout, delivery, things right. like that. Another one of my brothers has a very higher end fine dining restaurant. Really tough to pivot that to take out even if you can do it how is food going to carry you know when food's on on the pass and a steak is resting for two minutes yeah. before it hits the plate versus now in a container and it's 25 minutes before it hits right, right. how does a chef and a restaurateur adjust for that when you're in fine dining like like you are uh it hasn't been easy uh we uh, so we closed down in march uh the, that was the initial we actually closed down a few days before the we, the edict to, to do so because we kind of saw the writing on the wall. And, and like I said earlier, we realized the last night that we were actually open, there was no joy in the room. People were very paranoid. Uh, so we decided then, and our staff didn't feel comfortable uh, serving. There was still so much unknown about, about the virus, um, as there still is, but it seems like we've we're in a better place uh, information wise now than we were back then. But uh, so we decided that we were going to shut down and uh, then, you know, we always relied on dine-in uh, takeout was never a big part of our, our business. Um, also for the reasons that you mentioned, but uh, you know, so we decided we had to kind of figure out what we were going to do. We didn't know how long we would be shut down. We ended up being shut down uh, for about three or four months, I think, until we were allowed to reopen with uh, with uh, just outdoor dining. Mm -hmm. um, so we decided that we were going to go with the kind of throw a bunch of stuff on the, against the wall and see what sticks. And uh, yep. a lot of it didn't work. Some of our takeout ideas didn't work. We, we did come up with kind of like a, I thought, well, well, we need to do like kind of almost an Italian style bento box type meal. Uh, so that has been probably the most successful. It, it's sold well. It's, it allows us to stay, me and my team to stay, kind of feel like we're still creating and, and being creative and keeps us interested we change it every two weeks. So it's, it's a seven course meal and we, we didn't want to gouge people. We, we wanted it to be a value as well. So, so, um, and that's done fairly well. And as we reopen then with our, our large and, and really nice patio, uh, it seemed like uh, that was very attractive to our guests and how compliant we were. Uh, and so um, we were doing well with, with that also, but we kept, the seven course meal we opened up for some takeout. Uh, so now we're just going to go with the seven course. We're going to focus on another thing that we did early on is we, we uh, uh, got a 501 C, which is a, 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 a charitable organization designation. We were uh, doing a lot of charitable. So feeding people through our, our, kitchen since you know i felt it was a shame to have this big space that is is just made to produce food for a lot of people there's a lot of need in los angeles uh 
so we decided to kind of function as a charitable organization as well. Uh, it allowed us to keep uh, our team employed, part of our team employed who otherwise wouldn't have been employed. Uh, so that was good. That, that was helpful as well. Uh, so we might position back into that if the opportunity arises. Uh, another thing we've done recently is we've done um, kind of events. Uh, I partnering with the LA Rams and some local charities uh, did some kind of virtual uh, events that we've done. So we made a box of, of food that was then sent out to people who uh, paid to participate in this event. And it included kind of video chats with some of the Rams players and uh, they do it every year, Taste of the Rams, and I've participated. Mm -hmm. So instead of doing it in person, it was done in via Zoom. Uh, so we were able to put out a bunch of boxes for that and that, that, that was helpful too. So we're going to try to do that as well now that we're in the, uh, you know, the season where people would normally be having holiday parties. We're thinking, well, maybe people will be having kind of companies might be having virtual parties where they, we can send the food to their the employees who are working from home. So we'll see how that goes. You know, it's all it's all uh, kind of new to us, and of course, but but we're we're trying. <laughs> we're hustling. So, sure. so so let's 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 talk a little bit more of the uh, I don't say the glory days, but the time before COVID was was in our lives, yeah. and I want to hear a little bit about, and I have some, some questions I really want to ask you that are specific, but before I, I do, can you help me understand a little bit about your story, where you grew up, how you were inspired to think of food and cooking as going from a, a creative passion hobby to a profession? Just tell sure. me a little bit about, about your, the evolution of, of, of chefs, Chef Samson. Sure. I uh, grew up in L.A., so I'm a local boy. Um, I um, had initially decided after college. So my mom is from uh, Bologna in northern Italy. My dad is American, but he studied in Bologna, uh, met my mom there. They were married there. So growing up uh, in Los Angeles, um, my grandparents, my mom's whole family was still in Italy, in Bologna. So I used to spend summers over there. We uh, at least, uh, we try to go every year whenever it was possible. We didn't make it every year, but almost every summer I'd spend my summers in Bologna. So I kind of grew up with a whole new, not a whole new, but a, a different group of friends over there. I have a, my my. Bolognese, Bolognese friends and my <laughs> American friends in LA. So, uh, and then my, uh, in college, I spent my junior year of college in Italy. So I was in Venice. So uh, it was a pretty short train ride from Venice to Bologna. So it, it was Bologna and Italy in general had a huge influence on me growing up, uh, you know, being a, exposed to two different cultures and uh, it was very educational for me and, and Kind of, uh, you know, in, in Italy, uh, uh, it's, maybe it's changed a little as it's modernized, but, you know, food is pretty much the focal point of the culture. Uh, the, the family uh, is, you know, culture is around the table and uh, two large meals a day, lunch and dinner, but specifically lunch is actually a bigger meal there than dinner. Mm -hmm. But the whole family gets together and, you know, you spend a couple hours. And uh, so it's, it, it, was, it had a big influence on me, I, I, the, the type of food I grew up eating. I, I, 
fell in love with it. It's easy to fall in love with. It's delicious. Um, so, uh, you know, when I started cooking, I, I originally um, went to school, studied history in college. And then after a few years out of college where I didn't really know what I wanted to do career-wise with my life, I decided that I uh, maybe I thought I maybe wanted to become a doctor because my dad was a doctor, my brother's a doctor. Uh, so I went to move to New York to kind of st start studying all the pre-med requirements to go to medical school. I had, uh, you know, I took the MCAT, the entrance exam for, for medical school. And, uh, but my heart really wasn't into it. And uh, I remember I was at a friend's house uh, and I would, cook dinner for him and his girlfriend and and he took out the new york city phone book because you know there were still phone books back then and uh opened it to cooking school and said here you call them if you don't call them i'm going to call them call it for you so i called and and then uh i ended up going to cooking school instead of instead of uh medical school um and you know as soon as i uh got set foot into a professional kitchen it just felt right for me i just felt like i was at, in the right place i just loved the the whole everything about it. Uh, so I fell in love with it, almost in love at first sight, or if you will. Um, and from then on, I just uh, you know worked in different restaurants. Had an opportunity to go work in Italy. Um, I knew that I wanted to do. A, I didn't own specifically uh, work in Italian restaurants. I I worked in other restaurants as well. But I knew that eventually. I wanted to, to focus on Italian food. Um, I didn't realize how specific I, I wanted that to be. I, I eventually uh, opened uh, Soto, which was at a Southern Italian restaurant. Um, and then that was kind of around the time where I, I realized I wanted to just cook the food I grew up eating that caused me to fall in love with, with Italian food in the first place. And, and that was where the kind of idea for Rosso Blue came from was just uh, just cooking the food I grew up eating. Uh, it's very uh, simple, straightforward, but, um, you know, really kind of fills a really neat flavor profile that everybody seems to, to enjoy. It's not, you know, we, living in Los Angeles, there's so many great food cultures represented in the city here, um, you know, and a lot of them are very vibrant with different flavors, acidity, spice, um, you know, so, but uh, Bolognese food is not that. It's very kind of austere in a way, but it's mm -hmm. austere in the same way that maybe a Japanese food is where, you, but thankfully the, the flavor profiles are very kind of umami rich. And I think people generally love that kind of food. It's very, also very comforting in a way. So well, it speaks to an interesting point, and, and I, I can acknowledge that over the last, let's call it 10 years or so, the average consumer has gotten far more uh, educated, inspired in cooking and food than ever before as a result of internet, more progressive food retailers. Like, you know, there was no such thing as a whole food style market when we were kids. Yeah. You maybe go to a, to, a, uh, you know, to a farmer's market or something like that, which would be the best representation. But, you know, there was more of grocery stores in, in, that, in those times and, and reality TV, chef inspired shows, all this type of stuff. My question is, 
for the layperson, for up until probably uh, five or ten years ago, it would be very easy for us as North American people to allow the um, the melting pot philosophy to happen on cuisine, where it would be very easy to say this is Italian food or this is Chinese food, for example. And yet, within just Italy, a, a fairly small country geographically you could have such unbelievable differences between Bologna to Tuscan to, to Sicilian yeah. as a chef and someone who grew up in the Bologna sort of region and, and trying to bring that back to the U S from an inspiration standpoint, is it a challenge for you or an opportunity to try to pay homage to a specific region or style um, which requires a bit of education to the consumer in some ways, because, you know, if you think about authentic, you know, pizza from Napoli versus from other places, right. how do you, how do you, how do you work with those sometimes opposing and sometimes very uniting right. factors? Right. Um, no, that's a good point. I think that that melting pot philosophy did exist for many, many years and, gave rise to Italian-American food, which is completely different than anything you would find in Italy. I mean, you can see where they de- where some dishes derive from in Southern Italy, since most of the immigrants were Southern Italian. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can kind of get glimpses of, of what eventually became like spaghetti and meatballs, but you'll never see spaghetti and meatballs in Italy. Um, but so, and I, I'm sure the same, the same thing happened with Chinese food with all the lots of ethnic foods that became Americanized. And, and like you're saying, I think in the last, you know, 10 years or so, there has been kind of a, a, a desire of the, the consumer has become much more educated and that there is a desire on the part of the consumer to, to, to kind of seek authenticity as, as, as something that, that is, you know, it's kind of unique and cool to be able to go to a, uh, off an authentic Bolognese restaurant in Los Angeles, which Jonathan Gold said, it's kind of, you know, in a city with very few Bolognese grandmothers, you can eat like food from a Bolognese grandmother, which is true. You know, my mom, you know, moved to Los Angeles and, and, with well, with me and my my brothers and my dad in 19, 1972 and it was kind of impossible to find even ingredients to make authentic food and she tried you know it's like using bad parmesan cheese you know she did the best she could she was a great, she's a great cook um so luckily i was able to grow up around great italian food at home as well um, and then probably in the eight, like late mid to late eighties, there was a bit of a kind of Italian food renaissance that shifted from Italian American, which was based on Southern Italian cooking. There were a lot of Northern, they were just called Northern Italian restaurants. They weren't specific, but they were more authentic than, than anything that, that had been available prior to that. Uh, into the 90s and I worked for Piero Salvaggio who had Valentino which was kind of the kind of the vanguard of the northern Italian cooking in Los Angeles and even around the country but I worked for Piero for six years he kind of gave me my start in Italian 
cooking in LA. He sent me to Italy for stages. Um, so, and then I, I went to Southern Italy and I saw firsthand how different the food was in Sicily and in Campania, as opposed to even Tuscany or, or, or Emilia Romagna. And it's just crazy how, how different the, the, the cuisines are. <laughs> but back, back to your point, I do think that it's, it's uh, so w- for Bolognese cooking, it's really stripped down. I think to, in order for it to be authentic, it has to be very simple and stripped down. And I think most young American chefs want to add more <laughs> ingredients to a dish or more flavor profiles to a dish than stripping it down. So I'm always telling my guys that, you know, this is very straightforward food. Um, it can be wonderfully delicious and, and, but in order to do so, it just has to be seasoned correctly. It's not going to be hiding behind, you know, tons of chili or a- acidity. Uh, so you really have to hit the one note. You have to hit it like every time or else, you know, it could be bland or, or it could be too salty. So it, it was a challenge. Just finding that consistency was actually the hardest thing at first, uh, you know, making sure each dish was seasoned just right. Um, and well, one of the good things about the the whole COVID thing is we've basically trimmed down our team to the point that we're just running with our me and my sous chefs. Mm-hmm. So it's like every night I know it's it's become super consistent, which is good. So, uh, but yeah, I think consistency. As long as we hit the consistency, I'm okay with it being traditional. There are times I kind of play around with the menu or I'll let my sous chefs play around with, put a dish or two on the menu that aren't strictly bolognese per se. Uh, you know, it would be a shame to waste all the great produce and, and uh, that California has to offer just because it's not something they would eat in Bologna. So, you know, we might use, but there always has to be some kind of point that brings it back to, to what we're trying to do with authenticity. So that's a very interesting point. And just to give you context, first of all, have you ever been to Montreal? Have you ever eaten? I Montreal? have not. And I've wanted to go for the longest time. I, I oh, know. Boy. I, oh boy. Yeah. It, it is quite, it is quite a, a food city. And I, 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 hope, I hope you, I hope you come. Um, yes. But what, you know, one of the things that Montreal is, is known for is it's bagels. Unlike, right. or, or like many, you know, cities where you had a very rapidly evolving Eastern European community coming here right. and trying to recreate. And a lot of people have historically tried to do a Montreal bagel shop in Florida or in Toronto or other places, and they never seem to be able to get it. And it's not about the recipe. It comes down to so many other factors. Right. Montreal bagels and and. I'm bringing this up as part of the question I want to ask you. Montreal bagels are boiled before they go into right. a wood-burning oven. And right. the water the water content, what Montreal's water properties are unique to Montreal. For right. example, you won't get the same thing if you boil bagels in Miami, as an example. Mm-hmm. So someone who was grew up and was heavily influenced and inspired in Bologna, a chef coming back, there are such unbelievable differences in ingredients, whether it's based on mineral content of soil, yeah, sunlight, yeah. salty air, uh, the way things are raised. Try to get a Bisteca Fiorentine anywhere outside of Tuscany without that, right. that specific breed of cattle. 
right. is you can you can cut a T-bone any way you want. It's not going to taste the same. Right, right. As someone who has adapted to, and I've and I've read in your bio that you've tried to fuse together or marry Bolognese, if you will, and Californian, do you try to tweak ingredients and recipes to try to go back to the flavor profile? Or do you allow yourself the creativity to say, I'm not trying to make a carbon copy of Bologna. I'm trying to create a, a, an expression of that, knowing that there is going to be difference and nuance in the way things are yeah. done here. How, do, how does that come into yeah, play? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, the, the answer is like lay somewhere in the middle of both extremes. I think uh, that I, I do try to always, to me, it comes down to more of a philosophy of food. And, and the thing that is the hardest to recreate when you're in Bologna is you can get Parmigiano-Reggiano shipped over. You can get balsamic vinegar shipped over, prosciutto, mortadella, all that stuff. But, you know, when you go walk down the street in Bologna, <clears throat> or for that matter, really any uh, market, outdoor market in all of Italy, what's really striking is just how fresh and beautiful the produce is and, and the seafood. So it, it, it becomes, the philosophy becomes, you know, using the, the, the product at its best point. Not, you know, I mean, it's nicer than, if you go to Bologna, it's just shocking how, how fresh the produce is that you see on the street. It's something that, you know, in California and Southern California, I think people now are, have begun to expect that because, you know, we, we do, we do are very close to a lot of great farms that, mm -hmm. and our farmer's market here is, is great. Um, but that kind of produce that you get to see at, a, at like the Santa Monica farmer's market is normal in, in Italy. It's not, sure. it's not something that people have to go out and search for. Mm -hmm. So by default, I think the food just tastes better when you eat at somebody's house, when you eat in a little cafe uh, that like on a street corner, um, you know, if you, if you can avoid all the tourist places that are terrible, but generally you'll eat well in Italy. And it's, it's not necessarily because everyone's an amazing cook. It's just because they're using incredible ingredients and mm -hmm. the soil there just has so much flavor, volcanic soil and, and just the Po Valley has amazing, amazing, just it produces amazing products. And I think California has that as well. California does produce amazing products as well year round. It's not, you know, it's doesn't, there's no real winter here. So mm -hmm. we get, we have access to great produce year round here. Um, and yeah, I think just following that philosophy. And if I want to, you know, put a little bit of aged balsamic on some roasted Brussels sprouts, for instance, I, I will, or shave some parm on it, but I don't, necessarily have right now we have a brussels sprout dish that has a lot of acidity and a, even a little heat in it we don't generally in bologna there's really no spiciness in the food mm -hmm. but you know here you know we get we have these great chili peppers uh let's we'll throw a little chili pepper in there and, and make it more a california dish than a bolognese dish per se so well that's it's a great segue into i i read one of your quotes and it is it it, it 
it resonates a lot with me because Urban Bonfire um, is all about my story. It, it, it captures my experience as a young child, uh, growing up, spending summers in the country, the bonfire pit, what that meant to family, bringing people together. And yeah. Urban Bonfire, you know, today uh, is not really a, a concept that has a food angle to it directly when it started. Urban Bonfire was a 400 square foot little retail shop and we were selling big green eggs and smokers and Kalamazoo grills and charcoal and wood chips and spices. Like we were, my business plan was I want to be William Sonoma for the outdoors. Uh That was it. That's what, and and outdoor kitchens only came and evolved over time. Yeah. But so it is the truest reflection and the most authentic reflection of my story ever, which is beautiful because it's also the happiest I've ever been in any profession or career in in my life. I noted your your quote that you wrote and it's, you wanted Russell blue to tell your story. And you don't often hear that from chefs. You talk about my style. You talk about that. You, you were very clear in saying you wanted to tell your story and that you make point and note that California is as important as Bologna as part of that story. Yeah. How did you, how did you, how did you manage to do that and accomplish that? Was it premeditated? Did it come and evolve over time? How did that come to be? Yeah. I I mean, I just, I, I, you know, the, the, excuse me, the, the Bologna piece is a lot easier to pinpoint because it was a very influential part of my life going to a different country and being exposed to a different culture, having a different group of friends, speaking a different language. Um, the LA part, you know, just came from me growing up in LA and, and, yep. you know, it's, you know, LA is, can be a hard city to love and it can be, um, you know, it, it gets a lot of, uh, negative, uh, publicity a lot some of it warranted some of it maybe not so much but you know it wasn't uh growing up uh, i mean i grew up in a perfectly happy suburban lifestyle in in the la suburbs and played little league baseball and you know it was a good place nice place to grow up uh very diverse i was thankful when i you know later in life i realized how diverse my my upbringing was Uh, i think that's something that now that I have my own children, I, I really value uh, the diversity that they're they're experiencing growing up in Los Angeles. Um, so, you know, and then so when I, we were looking for a space, I think we I, we didn't want like kind of a cookie cutter Italian restaurant with you know the gondola murals on the wall. It, we realized that in order for it to be relevant and for the restaurant to be um, you know, successful, it had to be as much about Los Angeles as it did about Bologna, maybe even more so. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm friends with a lot of the other chefs in town here. I, I'm influenced by what they do. Hopefully what I do might influence some people a little bit. Mm-hmm. But I definitely, you know, uh, it's important for me to be, you know, a and for Rosso Blue to be, you know, talked about as one of the, the better restaurants in the city. And I think that if it were just kind of a, you know, a, 
kind of a restaurant that just focuses on doing really good Italian dishes and that's it, I don't think it would, would have that same impact. So we, we, we found this beautiful space that has actually, by LA standards, a decent amount of history. Uh, it's uh, this, the original wholesale produce market uh, in downtown LA that started off uh, serving with like horses and carriages over a hundred years ago. Um, and uh, it's the, the beautiful old buildings that, I mean, one of the good things about the fact that LA up until probably 15 years ago was downtown LA was kind of a forgotten area. You know, there were sections of it that survived for specific businesses, whether it was a financial district uh, that we're near, we're in the uh, fashion district there. We're near the flower district. There's the seafood district. So it was basically uh, just uh, a commercial area um, mm -hmm. and it survived like restaurants were only open for lunch Monday through Friday, 20 years ago in downtown LA. So 15 years ago or so, I think there was kind of a re-urbanization in LA mm -hmm. and what all those years of neglect allowed were, you know, I think in maybe some other cities where there was more of an active downtown area a lot of the buildings would have been like raised years ago and, and rebuilt and built up into skyscrapers. But there are parts of downtown LA that have just been like neglected for so long that there are some really beautiful bones there still, like the skeletons are there of these beautiful buildings. And so thankfully the, 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 the team that, uh, was chosen to um, redevelop City Market South, where Rosso Blue is, re uh, recognized that the saving the beauty and, and the history that was there in those buildings was really important. So we were left with mm -hmm. this really beautiful shell of a building. And, and you know, we used uh, some of the old, they, they, didn't, they didn't throw anything away, all the old push carts, that sure. they found with the wooden push carts in our basement. There's a, there was a wooden uh, uh, walk-in refrigerator with wood doors. We, we repurposed one of those doors and it's, it's the door on our, our wine cellar now. So uh, we felt it was really, and then we hired a great team who came in and we didn't have a ton of money. So uh, they wanted, they were like our, the architect and designers really wanted to go for this like kind of art de povera, which had, an art movement uh, from Italy where, you know, you just have nice touches, but everything else remains pretty, you know, pretty um, untouched. So we ended up with a really beautiful space. They did an amazing job. I think it's kind of striking when you come into our space. And so it does, even though the food is maybe not super, modern I, I wouldn't even say the space is modern because it has but it does have like little touches that seem like oh it could be in italy and some that that are clearly just this is a like a old building in downtown la so mm -hmm. it's so. amazing how the old buildings and i'll bring montreal again into it because it's just it's where i live and it's where, where i know but you know 
originally what we now refer to as old Montreal. Montreal was a walled city in the late 1700s and, and early 1800s. And only as it expanded outside the wall did those two sort of things come down. And for a really, really long time, old Montreal was almost desolate. I mean, there was some tourism, a couple of restaurants, but really, and now it is, if not the most, it is the most popular place to live, sure. set up an office restaurant. And to your point, restaurateurs setting up uh you know incredible spaces in mm -hmm. buildings that are still original from the late 1700s and early 1800s you know uh, my old office um many years ago was next to a very famous restaurant my office was actually uh built in the stables for the horses that used to be cool. where the so that's how much history there is and yeah. i think it's an amazing thing whether it's in new york with meatpacking or right. uh, i just think that evolution of retelling story through through change and through metamorphosis yeah. i think that's what keeps people interested and i yeah. think that's what keeps us evolving because everything is everything is cycles and it's just yeah. it's a great city should never stop growing, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. It's, just, it's just constant. Yeah. And L.A. was the kind of prototypical suburban city. It was, it was you know, it never, but I think over the last 20 years, it's really kind of a lot of character has been brought back into the city by just, by it being, like I said, re-urbanized as opposed to just pushing it out to the suburbs. So. I want to ask just a couple more things. Um, most chefs or many chefs refer to themselves as artists or like to be referred to as artists. And yet you specifically call out the fact, and I quote, I am a craftsman, not an artist. Mm -hmm. What's the difference? And how, how do you see the distinction? And, and why do you call attention to that fact? Um. When I started cooking professionally, like I fell in love with the craft and there's nothing artistic about being a line cook necessarily. You're replicating the same thing over and over and over again. And, you know, I, I went through a, a stage in my life prior to, to, to cooking where I was just kind of lost that professionally. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And it kind of probably looking back, flowed over into my personal life and I wasn't happy because I had no direction. And so the second I set foot into a, a kitchen, I said, I really want to do this. I wanted to be the best cook I could be. But what ended up happening was, you know, just being able to the, the discipline and the organizational skills that it takes to set up your station well, and uh, like realizing how important mise en place is and, um, those are, are lessons that apply to life in general and being able to, to uh, you know, just look at something and like, I, I have to get from point A to point B. Like I want to do it in the most efficient way. And it's, it's just, it's just really affected my life. And, and I realized that, that it was important to me that this learning this craft working with my hands and, and learning how to um, cook so that it, everything's super consistent um, 
And, you know, it's, it was like, I don't know, it was just very important for me to become a really good cook. And I still, to this day, am happiest when I'm working the grill at work or I'm working a station when I'm not. And I'm just kind of expedite, even expediting, or if I'm just supposed to be going around doing, I don't know what chefs do and they're not cooking, but I, I get lost. It's not. And so even, you know, is there, of course, I, I recognize that there is some artist artistry in what we do. Uh, it's, it's a specific type of person who is drawn to this career, I think. And usually there is some kind of artistic bent to that, the people who are drawn to this. Um, and I really admire people who go full on art artistic mode, like Jordan Kahn here in LA is a chef who's, who's an artist. He's, it's amazing what he does. I, I, I have great admiration for how he takes food and, and, and transforms it. But for what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to kind of recreate something. I'm not trying to create something necessarily. I, I don't necessarily, I've worked at restaurants where being creative was the most important thing. And it just didn't, it didn't drive me as much as, as restaurants where, the focus was on just really wholesome, honest food that is delicious. And, you know, that, that's what drives me. And to me, that's replicating the same thing every time and doing it in a way that is delicious and beautiful is more of craftsmanship than artistry. I think that's one of the things that drove me to the passion around outdoor cooking because it is not impossible, but it is fairly uncommon that you see very sophisticated food cooked and served and made outside it usually yeah. has that more simplistic raw great ingredients simple preparation um, and i acknowledge that you know working in a restaurant kitchen especially in california where you have probably the most stringent health regulations and codes anywhere um when you're not at work in your restaurant is cooking outdoors something with for you your friends your family is it something that is important meaningful to you do you like to is that something that that tell me tell me about uh, about that as uh, a, in, in your life i don't think there's any chef that doesn't end up at the grill at every party they go to pretty much <laughs> and uh you know i you mentioned the green egg i did a event uh a year or two ago and they, they gave me a, with them and they gave me the green egg. But unfortunately I live in a condo where we can't use live fire. It kills me. Tough. And Tough. yes, but I, my parents will have a nice big backyard. Uh, so I, I, every chance I can, I go up there and break out the green egg and, and uh, just cooking with that. My brother has a wood burning pizza oven in his backyard. Nice. I, I love nice. that. Something about cooking with, with live fire like that, that's just, we have a huge uh, wood burning hearth at our restaurant. It's like nine feet long. We only use a part of it. But I, I was like, I want this kid. It's definitely the focal point of the kitchen at the restaurant. When I opened, I thought we were going to have the whole thing like nine feet of fire, but that would have been way too hot. So we probably use yeah. about half of it now. And the other half we just kind of use to stage all our, all our food and stuff. So yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Wow. Last thing I want to ask you, and I hope it's not too personal, but 
you mentioned in your story um, really um, trying to take the experience from Bologna with your grandparents and, and bringing that story with you here. And I'll ask the question this way. If you can imagine your grandparents, and forgive me, I don't know if they are still with us or, or not, but if you can imagine your grandparents walking into Rosso Blue and you're cooking that night and they say, I'll order the tasting menu and you have <laughs> the opportunity to cook the dishes that would best reflect you and that story you want to share and could serve them, what would be on that menu? What would you make for them? Oh, wow. That's a good question. Uh, no, they're both uh, been gone for a while now. Um, well, I and uh, the tasting menu, they probably wouldn't even know what that meant. They were very fair enough. People. If you were just <laughs> they barely spoke Italian, they spoke uh, Bolognese, they spoke dialect, they barely even spoke Italian. If uh, you were just sending out your top three, four, five dishes well, that represented that story, what, what would yeah. those dishes be? Well, unfortunately, since the pandemic, we have we had to uh, we don't we haven't been serving one of them that I would serve. And so my mom was actually born in a house up in the mountains between Bologna and Florida in the Apennines. Uh, so it's kind of, it was this house that I used to still go to. It's still in our, it was been in our family for probably four or five hundred years. Wow. Uh, my grandfather was doing some work on the house once and he knocked down a wall. And he found all these old deeds in the wall. And the earliest one, I think, was from like 1607. Then the house had been just my ancestors living there for that. And God knows how long before that. So it was it's a very humble house. But it, it was a place that like I'd go there and I'd sleep in the bed my mom was born in and my grandfather was born in that bed. So it was very, uh, a very cool place. And it's like in the middle of nowhere. It's like five minutes 10 minute walk from a town of maybe a couple hundred people. So uh, we'd go up there and my nonna used to uh, cook uh, with a big stick. She'd make polenta and she'd pour the polenta out onto a cutting board and cut it with a string and then serve it with ragu bolognese and cheese. Uh, we tried to do that. It was just hard to replicate that, but what I would, I definitely serve ragu tagliatelle because she would roll that out every day with her rolling pin. Um, and then I, my grandfather in the meantime would just build a fire and he would build a little fire against uh, the, the wood, the stone wall and he would grill pork chops and sausages that he would buy at the butcher shop. So when we opened, we had a, um, uh, oh boy, sorry, that's my dog. It's okay, I, no he's, he's outside the door, but he's he's locked. Up. You said you said pork chops, and he got excited. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. It's okay. Yeah. So, uh, but he, we would get whole pigs in and butcher them, and so we'd break them down into pork chops, and then we'd use the shoulder. We make our own sausage. We still make our own sausage, but we haven't been getting the whole pigs in. Like we figured after COVID, people wouldn't want these big, huge, shareable meals, unfortunately. So we just haven't gotten back to, but I would, I would get a pig in just to make that pork chop dish. And it was named after Ilario. His name was Ilario. It's Grigliata. We named it after him. So I would do some tortellini and brodo because uh, that was kind of, that's kind of the celebratory dish. It's very labor intensive. So um, every cell, uh, like, Christmas Day, Easter Sunday, 
you'd always in Bologna always eat tortellini and brodo. So probably give them a little tortellini and brodo, uh, tagliatelle al ragu, a big uh, pork chop, and some and some uh, and this grilled sausage, and then uh, throw a couple vegetables in there just to stay healthy. Sounds 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 delicious. Yeah. Chef Sampson, thank you very very much for the time. Thank I. You. Um, when the travel restriction ends, yeah. California is really at the top of my list from both business yeah. and also one of my oldest and best friends in the world lives in uh, Palos Verdes. So okay. um, it's really at the top of my list to come back out. I sincerely hope when I do, I'll have the privilege of uh, dining in your restaurant. Yeah, I would love, love, I would like, I'd yeah. love it. I would absolutely yeah, I want love to come it. to Montreal. It's, it's definitely on my list as well. I know how beautiful it is and I know how good the food is. It I've been really is. If that, I, did, that. I, I worked in New York at a restaurant and they opened the, the, the owners opened a restaurant with Norman Lapri uh, oh. in, in uh, New York. This was 20 okay. plus years ago. Uh, yeah. I forget what, I forget what it was called. So I got to meet him. Super nice guy, super talented nice. guy. Uh, I know guy. He's one of the, uh, the godfathers out there. So, I would say he is the godfather. If you look at the whole wave of Montreal chefs from the guys from, from Joe Beef to others, I mean, uh, Norman Laprise has uh, in some ways touched most or if not all right. of them right. some way. So agreed. Um, cool. Thank you for the time. Greatly thank appreciate you. it. Happy yeah, Thanksgiving. You too. Happy Thanksgiving you to you and your family. On Thursday up there. We our Thanksgiving actually falls in the middle of October, about a month right. before you. Right. But uh, we're still going to uh, celebrate it and uh, enjoy because who doesn't want a second meal of <laughs> exactly. turkey and all and all the and all the fixings? It's just uh, awesome. it's just good eating regardless yeah. of the uh, of the holiday. So yeah, great. Well, so nice talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chef. What a great conversation. Anytime a chef can articulate what inspires him through story of family and travel and time in Italy with his grandparents, it just resonates with me in such a big way. Down to when he articulated what the meal he would make for his grandparents if they were in his restaurant today to show them that level of celebration and respect for all he learned from them. I hope you enjoyed our conversation today with Chef Steve Sampson. Thanks for joining us on the Fireside Chat by Urban Bonfire. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Join our conversation on LinkedIn, Instagram, at Urban Bonfire. And if you have questions, comments, thoughts, or an idea for a future episode, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, thanks very much for listening.